Welcome to another episode of Diversity Dish. Today's episode is sponsored by VIP Discovery Dates with Sadie. That's me. VIP Discovery Dates are a full day immersion into discovering what your untapped strengths are, how to use them in your business, how to use them in your anti-racist work so your efforts are more magnified, and mapping out how you're going to get to the big, brilliant goal you'll set while on our date. The, the brief information with a link to sign up is in the show notes. There are only five spots available, so make sure to hurry. Your brilliance will always make a difference. Welcome to Diversity Dish, where we're dishing on everything diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice related. My name is Sidrola Maruska, and we're bridging the gap between what needs to be said and what needs to be heard. Those individual experiences that are often ignored or simply dismissed. Sometimes I'm dining alone, sometimes I'm dining with friends, and sometimes I'm dining a la carte. No matter how I'm dining, it promises to be delicious. Let's dig in. Deborah Vogue is a crisis navigation partner with 30 plus years of experience as a leadership, researcher, executive, and advisor. Her career path has included conducting research at Harvard Business School, advising tech startups on people strategy, and directing admissions and career development for the MIT dual degree MBA program leaders for global operations. Throughout, she has demonstrated her commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. A theater lover and occasional intuitive painter, Deborah delights in spending time with her high school age son and daughter at their home in Arlington, Mass. She's also a voracious reader and sometimes knitter. All right. Hey, Deborah, it is so good to have you here. How are you? Hi, Sadie. I'm excited to be here. I'm good. Good. I'm glad to hear you're good. It is so great to have you. I am really excited about our conversation. But before we jump in, we won't jump in head first. We'll wade into the pool and we'll start with something super easy. And that is, what is it that you're passionate about right now, Deborah? Oh my gosh. There's a <laughs> lot of things I'm passionate about right now. I am consistently passionate about the importance of education. Mm. I'm consistently passionate about social justice. Mm-hmm. And I am consistently passionate about women and mm. helping women understand and leverage their own individual brilliance because I believe we're all brilliant mm-hmm. in order to make the change that they want to make in the world. I love it. I went through that through, okay, I really want to help women find their brilliance because I believe that we're all very, we're all brilliant in our own ways that we just yes. sometimes get, it gets lost. Now I've kind of settled in this space right here where I still believe that women are brilliant. And I also believe that women are going to save the world because I think that the men have had their chance and they, they've blown it consistently. So I think that women are going to save the world as soon as we can get to where we all kind of work together (laughs) on every, on things that need to happen. So I love to hear that. So is your superpower tied to your brilliance? And what is that? Is my superpower tied? So 
I guess I think of superpower and brilliance kind of being similar, but is it tied to my passion? Yes. Um, is that what you're asking? Or is it tied to my yes, passion? Yes, yes. Um, so let's see. One of my superpowers, I think, is being lovingly honest. Nice. And I have a commitment to saying my truth to power, even yes. when it's uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, and I also, you know, my truth isn't the, the truth. It's, it's my truth. It's your truth. So absolutely. I have learned over the decades of my career that I, my superpower is being able to say what I see to be true mm -hmm. in a way that's loving and compassionate, even if it's kind of hard to hear right. somebody else. Right. So mm -hmm. I make it hopefully easier to hear because it comes from good intention to share. Okay. So yes, I think I would say that, yes, it would be tied to your passion for sure. It, <laughs> that helps to yeah. get it. Yeah. Yeah. They kind of work in tandem, right? Yeah. Well, passion is part of brilliance, right? And, and the way I think of what brilliance is, passion yeah. is part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you are what you call a crisis navigation partner. Is that correct? Yeah. That yeah, can you explain to us just a little bit what that means? Because I didn't know, so I'm feeling that maybe others who are listening don't know as well. I would be very surprised if you know knew or they knew <laughs> if they'd never talked to me before, because this is my profession and I made it up. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> over time, I would love for everyone to learn what a crisis navigation partner is yeah. and for it to be common parlance, but I only made it up a year ago, so I'm just getting started on that. All so, right. First of all, let's take the word crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, a crisis is something that happens that is so disruptive to your life and work that you can't go on with your regularly scheduled programming. Right. Crises are inevitable in our lives. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a big challenge that pops up that you didn't necessarily see coming. Mm -hmm. It could be uh, one of my close friends is facing a crisis when her husband just announced one day, you know what? I don't want to be married anymore. And by the way, I've been dating for the past six months. That was very yeah. disruptive, as you can imagine, to my friends. <laughs> no yeah. yeah. Um, a crisis can be something business-oriented. It can be the business having to downsize. It could be the person, the leader having to uh, downsize the company, which is really hard. Also, it could be someone getting downsized or losing their job for whatever mm -hmm. reason. There's lots of different kinds of crises that can come up. And I realized last summer, a year ago, that crisis navigation has actually been a theme of my career, even before I had a career, even when I was a teenager. I was always that kind of go-to person that was steady in an emergency situation and that yeah. people turn to for help. Like, how do I get through this? Mm -hmm. I've been through enough crises of my own, including... Mm -hmm. I am divorced mm -hmm. and then I am a single mother for 12 years now. Mm -hmm. um, I uh, have two kids with special needs from a medical perspective. So I've gone through the crises of their diagnosis and having to adjust our lives and around all that. Right. And I, part of what I'm passionate about is I don't want anyone else, any other women, any other leaders to feel alone when they're going through their crisis. Mm -hmm. So as I did, I, I felt alone. I didn't have family nearby. I had friends who had 
who were wonderful but had their own loads of things that they were trying to carry mm -hmm. as professional women. And so I created this profession of crisis navigation partner so that if someone is in a crisis and they feel like they don't have the support that they need from their community, mm -hmm. I can make supporting them not like a side thing that I do between 8 p.m. and 10 p.m. at night after I've done all my work, but I can right. make it the main focus of my profession. So right. as a crisis navigation partner, I help people get clear about their vision for their best possible way through the best possible outcome of whatever the crisis is. Mm -hmm. I help them strategize for any of the difficult conversations they need to have in the crisis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I do research projects for them that they don't have time to do to help them make better decisions more efficiently when mm -hmm. they solve the crisis. And I connect them to resources that they need, whether that's doctors, lawyers, people who are educators, depending on the crisis, could be a lot of different people. Mm -hmm. um, I am a connector and I use my network, open up my network to my clients to help them quickly find the best people to help them through whatever it is in addition to me well then crisis navigation partner is quite descriptive of exactly what you do you're kind of partnering and walking with which is mm -hmm. which is you know really cool so yeah I don't know that I've ever heard of anyone doing that sort of thing where they take someone and they kind of walk them through without being a therapist or yeah. without being a friend an actual friend of the person or although I'm sure you've done it for friends as well as people who are not sure. you, you yeah. just met so well that's really cool so so I noticed that in your bio you mentioned that throughout your career you have demonstrated a commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit to that since we are diversity dish? And so, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, those concepts have mattered to me for my whole life. Mm -hmm. And I can talk about why, if you want some of the, you know, the personal sure. Yeah, background. sure. I uh, come from a white Jewish family. Mm -hmm. um, I am the grandchild of Holocaust survivors. Mm. I have mm -hmm. always thought a lot about what happened during the Holocaust, what my grandparents went through, what would it have been like, what would I have been like if I was there mm. from a young, young age. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I've always been a person who wants to welcome everybody for who they are. In my family, there are people who were not welcomed. For mm. example, when a sibling of one of my parents, white and Jewish, mm -hmm. married a black woman. And mm -hmm. that black woman was not welcomed by my parents. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. the children that came out of that marriage, who were my first cousins mm -hmm. for decades, were not welcomed and included. And it pained me. Wow. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so I think it started there. But I also had my own experiences, even just as a white Jewish woman. My family moved around a lot when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. And when we lived in Nebraska, I was 13 and I had my bat mitzvah and we belonged to a congregation that was very egalitarian, which meant that the girls were welcome to 
take on all the responsibilities in the service of their mm-hmm. bar mitzvah as the boys were mm-hmm. in their bar mitzvahs. Yeah. Then right after that, the next year, my family, so I learned a ton and yeah. I was excited to use it. And my family moved from Omaha, Nebraska to Columbia, South Carolina mm-hmm. and joined a synagogue mm-hmm. where girls and women were not allowed to do anything. It was only the men who were able to go up front and lead services. Mm. Only the men who were allowed to read from certain books. Only mm-hmm. the men who were allowed to have certain leadership positions. Mm-hmm. And I felt, even as a 13-year-old, like, hey, I, I have all this knowledge. I have these mm-hmm. skills. I want to help. I want to participate. I want to contribute. And I was told, no, you don't belong. So mm-hmm. sit down and don't worry mm-hmm. your pretty little head about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so even in my own community, yeah. um, you know, the Jewish community, which is quite diverse, even mm-hmm. though it's small, I felt excluded. And I yeah. felt that I didn't belong. Mm-hmm. And I felt that diversity wasn't welcomed there. So <laughs> as a teenager and going through high school and go, I, I chose the college to go to that was very diverse where I valued, uh, where diversity was valued. I wanted to learn the experiences of as many different kinds of people as I possibly could from all different cultures and all kinds of mm-hmm. backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And I loved that experience. And um I became very interested in where psychology and business come together. Mm-hmm. And I started doing organizational change consulting and found that I was especially interested in the diversity piece in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I worked for a consulting firm, uh, for consulting firms doing work on diversity, equity, and inclusion, although we just called it diversity <laughs> back mm-hmm. at, the, at the time. Right. Um, right. Diversity in the workplace. And Mm -hmm. then I worked at Harvard Business School with two professors who ended up writing this book I brought to show you. It's usually on my bookshelf behind me. It's called Breaking Through the Making of Minority Executives in Corporate America. Yeah. And I was very proud to have done a lot of the primary research and interviews for that book and to have been a part of it. Mm -hmm. We looked at three large Fortune 100 companies who were very different and looked at white managers and executives mm-hmm. and managers and executives who were people of color. Mm-hmm. And there were some women, a few white women thrown in there and mm-hmm. looked at how their career trajectories were different mm-hmm. and why some people made it farther up the organizational ladder than others. Mm-hmm. So that really fascinated me and felt aligned with my values Later, I became a director of admissions and career development at MIT. Mm-hmm. And it was very important to me to look at how diverse is this MBA class? How mm. diverse is this engineering class? Mm-hmm. Why do we have people who mostly look like this and not look like that? And what mm. do we need to do in this environment to attract people and retain them mm-hmm. as students, people of color, as students? and uh, faculty members as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So those topics I've just brought with me wherever I've gone, including to uh, the women's organization that I was a leader in until very recently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in your opinion, what is the answer to that very question that you just asked? Did, or, or did you come to any type of conclusion? Like how do you reach 
those candidates or, you know, potential students for these programs? And how do you retain them? Because I think that that's where a lot of people get you know, they're like, well, we're looking at these higher up schools and we're looking at this, but, and we're not finding what we need. And then they think that they're supposed to lower the bar in order to actually yeah. get brilliant people in, which to me just seems like our, our really, <laughs> you yeah. know, so. no, not really. there's a lot to it. So there's this story that I heard when I was working in Harvard business school, it was a case, it was a business school case. There was this German baby food company. Mm-hmm. And they decided it was, no, it was an American, I think it was an, actually, no, sorry. It was an American company that yeah. made baby food. Yeah. And they wanted to sell their baby food in Germany. Uh-huh. <laughs> Tell me if you've heard this story before, but it always, no, I, I haven't. So the American team, they're like, let's go to Germany and let's change our baby food jar labels into German. We'll just translate mm-hmm. to English, make it German put it on the shelf, see what happened. Nobody bought the baby food. Nothing. And they couldn't figure out why. No one buys the baby food. <laughs> Finally, and, and this was just an all-American team, and they did not include anybody from Germany on the uh-huh. marketing team. Mm. Well, when they finally started investigating and talking to Germans, mm. this is what they found out. In Germany, I don't know if this is still true, but it was just at, or it was at that time, Mm-hmm. What there's a picture of on the label indicates what's inside the jar. Mm-hmm. What do we put pictures of on American baby food jars? Babies. <laughs> the babies. <laughs> so nobody bought the food because they thought there was babies. <laughs> that is hilarious. Had this company, which was very successful in America, had they put together a marketing team that include representation of oh. the market they were trying to serve, maybe oh, you somebody think? would have mentioned that sooner. You think? So, <laughs> the first thing you've got to do is yeah. invite people to the table and right. include them. This is yeah. my long answer to your question about how do you um, attract and retain a yeah. diverse workforce or a diverse student body, depending on what the situation is. Sure. That's a big part of it. And you're right. A lot of times people say, oh, well, there's, we don't have any people who look like this here. That must mean there aren't any good enough to be here. Right. Absolutely not the answer ever. Right. Because if you have a whole range of people from one end of the spectrum to the other end of the spectrum within one type of people or one culture of people or one race of people, then yeah. you've got that variety in, in all, all of them. Of people. Absolutely. And I have seen repeatedly people just making assumptions like, oh, well, they're not out there. In addition to before you even invite them to the table, mm-hmm. you have to be open to the strong likelihood that they exist mm-hmm. <laughs> and right. that you, the people that you want can yeah. come from that group that you're trying that you're trying to attract and then there's so many steps from there it becomes a chicken and egg problem because there are qualified people but it's mm-hmm. very challenging and painful to be the first 
the only or the one of a few. Yeah. Where like I was as a 13 year old girl, I was the only girl who knew how to lead those prayers in the synagogue in Columbia, mm-hmm. South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was hard because I was like, let me do it. Let me help. Let me help. And then the message I got was, we don't need help from the likes of you. Yeah. We don't need that here. Mm-hmm. And that was painful. So being capable, but not being welcomed is mm-hmm. a difficult position to be in. Right. And so even though there were qualified applicants mm-hmm. to go to MIT to be in the MBA class at Sloan, Mm-hmm. people were hesitant to choose to attend there because there weren't enough other people like them. Mm-hmm. Didn't wanna, most of them didn't want to be the first or the only or the one of a few. And right. so then there's steps to take about how you build a diverse community. Mm-hmm. And you can't just let one person in from over here and one person in there from over the time and then just hope that somehow miraculously multiplies over time you <laughs> right. have to make a decision to make a commitment to diversity and open up a bunch of seats at a time yeah, yeah. and that means that some of the people who are in the majority aren't necessarily going to just naturally get access to those seats anymore right and that is often very difficult for organizations to stomach because but it's always been that way we've always had one person from the economics department who looks like that over here yes yes we might need to change that now right right it's it's okay you know it, it blows my mind all the time when things when that phrase comes up well this is how we've always done it it's like, and so how's that working for you? Is it actually creating the the culture and the space that you really want? Is this what you want? And if it's not what you want, then you have to figure out what you need to change. <laughs> it can't be how it's always been. It has to be different because as we know, the systems were built on premises that certain people Black people or other people of color were not smart enough or were not strong enough, were not c- creative enough, whatever it was. They just weren't it. Not enough. Yep. Right. Not enough. So then so then they built these systems over here to create this homogenous place. Now we're trying to say, no, this homogeny doesn't work because if you have more of this, these people who are smart enough who are creative enough who are strong enough to get in they actually have ideas that you would never even think of to help you create a more dynamic company mm-hmm. are you willing to let go of how you've always done it and do the hard work of creating something new that's always you know and it's always like well um and it's like oh <laughs> and you have to okay. be because as we know the definition of insanity is doing yes. the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. So if you yes. actually want change here, yeah, you're going to have to do things differently. Differently. And some people are not going to like that. But right. This value of diversity is something you truly hold high and strong. Yeah. Then mm. you're going to have to be willing as leaders to deal with the discomfort that other people might feel to no longer be in power in the way they were before. 
right? There has to be a shift. There's always going to be a little bit of discomfort. Well, not maybe more than a little bit, but there's always going to be discomfort when there's change. But then when everything settles, you've got something better. And to get to something better, you always have to go through that metamorphosis. It's funny because I was just reading a story about the butterfly in the cocoon. And this man's watching this butterfly trying to get out of the cocoon. Have you heard this? And the, the butterfly is trying to get out and it's squirming and squirming and pushing, kind of pushing its way out. And, and then it stops. And the man thinks, oh, gosh, um, he, needs, he needs some help, right? And so he cuts the cocoon for the butterfly. And then the butterfly ends up never being able to fly and having a big body and tiny wings because going through the change that he needed required the pain of squirming and pushing and prodding and, you know, and, and getting the fruit from the body to the wings so that the wings could then be big enough to fly. Right. So when you're not going through that morphosis, you're just laming yourself, right. You're just making yourself lame when you're just saying, well, that's just how it's been. You're like that guy who cut the, the cocoon and now the butterfly is like, lives its whole life on the ground, not being able to move because you don't want to go through the pain. There is a certain amount of pain that is necessary with this. So hello. It is painful. Yeah, of course, but it's important to hold that space, right? <laughs> yeah. To remind yourself of where it is you want to go with what you're doing, no matter how painful it is, you have to kind of remind yourself, but this is going to get us there. Whatever is going to get us to that place, that's what we need to have happen, whether it's painful or uncomfortable or what, what, whatever it is. Right. And I believe that diversity, more diversity will always equal a better outcome, a better result in the long run, but it doesn't necessarily equal more harmony along the way. It may be more painful. There might be more conflict, but in the end, you're going to get a better result. You're going to get a better product. You're going to get a better workforce. You're going to get a better solution. You're going to get a better Mm -hmm. paper written. If Mm -hmm. you have input from a diverse perspective into creating whatever you're trying to create. Right. Exactly. And so we also talked a little bit about right before, you know, we got on, you talked a little bit about how, when it gets difficult. So we're talking about this organization that you've been with and when it gets difficult to truly implement what will give more diversity into this organization, then it gets scrapped. (laughs) It's like, yeah, never mind. That was a good idea, but uh, it's a little too hard, right? Um, a little hard. Yep. Yeah. And how we were talking about, you know, even with women. So, you know, women start these organizations, they start these organizations with all of the best intentions. And then when it seems that it's going to be too difficult to incorporate black women into the, into the story or to incorporate other women of color into the story, then white women kind of let go. And say, well, oh, well, and kind of move on on their own, leaving 
women of color behind. What are your thoughts on that? Because I know we were we were talking about that and we, we, we both kind of see it <laughs> where it's like, ah. Yeah, I mean, it, my thoughts, I'm having more feelings and thoughts at the moment. It makes me really angry. You yes. know, for people who are just used to being included and used to being in power and used to being at the top of whatever, uh-huh. to say, oh, well, you know, I invited that black woman to the meeting. And mm. she came and then she never came back. Oh, well, I tried. That makes me angry. That makes mm. me angry that the people in the majority can just make a little bit of effort and then just say, well, that didn't work. So I let it go. Well, it didn't work because you only made a little bit of effort. Right. And if you really want to make change, it's going to take a lot more than one invitation to one person one time with no follow-up. Right. Exactly. It's like, was it a real effort or was it performative? <laughs> yeah. Right. Because there's, there's performative, there's the, Hey, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna, whatever, the, what was it? Share the mic. We're going to black out our squares. We're going to do this. And then, Oh, but nothing's changed. So we're just going to stay in our corners. Is that That's performative. Or are you really willing to step out ask the hard questions, listen to the hard answers and actually change something, make a change. It takes chutzpah. (laughs) Yeah. Are you willing to be uncomfortable to get the result that you say is important to you? Yes. It is directly tied to power because if a few people in the bottom of an organization are willing to be uncomfortable in order to make a change. That's mm-hmm. a good start, but it's not gonna work unless the leadership, the top of the organization is bought in. And Absolutely. what happens in the organization that I was mentioning before mm-hmm. is that the leadership at the top of the organization was not willing to face the discomfort yeah. of conversations that were difficult in order to diversify the organization. It was just too right. uncomfortable and it didn't feel nice. And so yes. never mind. We're just right. gonna go away and think about it until we can think of a nice way to do this. It's gonna be thinking for a long, long time. <laughs> let's do people, let's do. I think that's good thinking, but without action. It's, it's All right. So I have a program that I'm putting together and it's called Be About It. Uh-huh. And it's really for entrepreneurs and solopreneurs to be about it rather than think about it, talk about it, read about it, you know, wonder about it, be about it, do something about it. If you want to create an organization, a business that projects equity and inclusion and therefore attracts and magnetizes to diversity because there's this culture in this in this, in what you're building, you have to be about it. And being about it means you have got to roll up those sleeves and get in the muck Mm -hmm. with it. Right. You've Mm -hmm. got to, so that's why I called it be about it. I'm like, because it's not going to be nice. I don't understand this word. Nice. Let's talk about nice. (laughs) Let's talk about nice. Yeah. Let's talk about nice for a second. Like there's being kind. I understand being kind to people. And I understand sharing information in kindness. Nice is just this kind of catch-all word that 
means not much because you can be nice to me, to my face and hate my freaking guts, right? You, mm-hmm. it, it happens all the time. You can be nice to me and yet you think very little of me because of you can't relate to me because of my race, because of my religion, because of, you know, my sexual orientation, because, of, but you can be nice to me, but you're not willing to understand and get to know me and be kind and seriously be kind by understanding and digging in. What are your thoughts on that? Like, nice. <laughs> I don't think I'm really a fan of nice because you can also be, I can be nice to you. And not tell you the truth. Yes. A lot of being nice is hiding how I actually feel from you because it might make you uncomfortable. So if you're the leader and I know I around to get along here, I just got to be nice. I'm not going to show you what I see. Mm -hmm. If I don't show you what I see, I'm not being a leader. So nice doesn't do it. This morning on my walk, I was listening to a podcast of, did you read the book or see the series Little Fires Everywhere? No. Oh my gosh, so good. Is it good? Okay. So good. It's on Hulu and uh, it was a book written by Celeste Ng and Mm -hmm. the series was uh, uh, executive produced by and starred in Kerry Washington and, and Reese Witherspoon. Okay. Okay, so this morning I was listening to the podcast where Brene Brown interviews Celeste Ng about writing Little Fires Everywhere. And they okay. were talking about nice. And I can't remember the exact words they used, and I wish I could right <laughs> now, but they were talking about how nice is never a force for change. It's never no. a tool. It's not a tool for power. Exactly. Those weren't their words, but that was the point. Yes. So you can have a lot of Black women and white women being nice to each other other. it Mm -hmm. doesn't mean we're going to create the result that we want to make together right because i'd rather be honest than nice honest yeah i can say things like i said part of my brilliance before i is lovingly honest i believe i can say pretty much anything to anybody Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in a lovingly honest way it doesn't Mm -hmm. have to be nasty no but this is i'd much rather tell the truth Mm -hmm. than have people think that i'm nice Right. And that's made me not necessarily always popular mm-hmm. in my family of origin. From the stories <laughs> I mentioned to you before, not always popular in the women's organization where I was a leader until recently. But right. I'd rather that I wasn't so honest because it's not so nice. And it not it funny that honesty is not nice, but lie as much as you want to my face as long that's as nice. you're doing it with a smile. That's yes. nice. That's nice. That's That's nice. nice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, and so, you know, the the frustration that we have, especially as Black people, when someone is protesting something nicely, right? Someone's just kneeling and all of a sudden that makes you uncomfortable. So now it is an affront to the military. It's an affront to the flag. It's an affront to everything. But then when people go out in the streets and riot, you're like, well, why can't they just be nice? Why can't they do it quietly? Why can't they, you know, figure it out, man? You know, the honesty is coming forth. You're having a problem with it. Does it make it wrong? You having a problem with being able to face what you're facing 
doesn't mean that they are wrong or that they are doing anything mean to you. So yeah, there's a, there's a whole, I just want to say one thing that that reminds me of is I remember Oprah Winfrey saying on one of her talk shows, you know, decades ago, she talked yeah. about how the universe will whisper to you, but then if yes. you don't hear the whispers, then it'll start being louder yes. and then it'll get louder. And she was talking about, you know, spirituality, but similarly yeah. with what we were just talking about, you, society, didn't like it when yes. Colin Kaepernick knelt yes. nicely. He mm-hmm. was kind of whispering. Mm-hmm. You rejected that. Yes. And then you're surprised when right. things get louder and louder and louder and escalate further. That's inconsistent. You, you, you can't let decide whisper to you without being uncomfortable. Yeah. You're going to eventually be yelling. And, and then they're you comp- can just start listening sooner. <laughs> yes. yes, definitely start listening sooner. Uh, so you, you said that you were at the intersection of psychology and business, which yeah. I find that to be really interesting because I, I, when I look at it from a marginalized person's perspective, the psychology and the business that coming together. I go, wow, is anyone thinking about how the environments that we have to go work in is affecting us psychologically and affecting us in our personal lives as well as at home um, mm-hmm. and at work because there is a psychology to all of us. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so when I worked at Harvard Business School doing the research for the book I was telling you about, I worked in the organizational behavior department. And to me, academically, organizational behavior is what sits right at that intersection of psychology and business. Mm-hmm. And organizational behavior has two levels to it. There's macro and micro. So mm-hmm. the macro is looking at a whole workforce or a whole mm-hmm. economy. The mm-hmm. micro is looking at a person at a time mm-hmm. and what something feels like very locally where the macro is much more global. And so I think about, I go back and forth. I toggle between thinking about things at a macro level and a micro level all the time when mm-hmm. it comes to the work that I do. What are the forces that make women the ones who bear the brunt of most of the crises that happen? Why do mm. women bear mm. most of the emotional load when men don't in a heterosexual couple or family. And it's all very complex. Mm -hmm. And I think that we dramatically underestimate as a society the toll Mm. that it takes on an individual to feel excluded, Mm -hmm. to feel they don't belong, Mm -hmm. to feel marginalized. I know, even from my experience of being a 13-year-old girl who happened to know how to lead a whole bunch of prayers, Mm -hmm. I was told not to, you know, what that felt like. Mm -hmm. And I know it from other experiences too, especially, you know, as an adult. Um, I think it's really important that we talk about, that one of the things they talked about on this podcast this morning that I thought was so interesting, they talked about the term microaggression. Yeah. And how the idea of a microaggression is that it? Part of the idea is it's unintentional. Mm. But since micro means small, small, we tend to assume that microaggressions 
are just small acts, no big deals, don't have a big impact. And so right. time is almost kind of a misnomer. It is, yeah. Because you can have, you can not intend to be hurtful to somebody else and mm-hmm. still be hurtful in a very big way. In so a very big way. Yeah, is microaggression even the right word? I haven't even right. finished listening to this podcast yet, but there was so much in it. I highly recommend <laughs> But yes, yeah, um, you know, I talk about microaggressions a lot because I, I think it's so important for people to be more aware of who of themselves, they need to be more aware of how they've been socialized, we've all been socialized in a way that causes us to say certain things that maybe we didn't intend to hurt. But when it's brought to your attention, the, the problem is that you then say, well, that wasn't what I intended and you get defensive versus, wow, I didn't realize that that was how it would affect you. What would have been better to say? What would have been better to do? I apologize. How can I, how can I change my behavior? Because we're all learning. Microaggressions are those things that people just kind of drop and go. And the person realize it. And the person, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the person who's experiencing goes, oh my God. And you have to keep moving, but that's been done. That cut has been happened, has happened, right? Then you get another one and you get another one and you get another one. The impact, as you say, is not micro. It is macro. And it's one of the things that I I always talk about is um, the effects of, these things in so there's always this talk that oh there's so much hypertension and high blood pressure and um, diabetes and all of these things in the black community Mm -hmm. but have we thought about how those things are stress induced and what is the stress that is being carried on a daily basis to induce these things Right. It's so much easier to just jump to a conclusion. Yes. That that, oh, they wrong with those people. Right. But they're not this enough or that enough. Exactly. That's why they have those medical conditions to deal with. Yes. It's a them thing. It's a them thing. It's not anything to do with me. It's them. Right. And so I think it's just so important. I mean, this has been 2020, it's been a very difficult year in so many ways, but Mm. I'm so glad that the term anti-racist has made it into mainstream conversation because yes I want to tell I don't want to be racist but I am and that's not my desire it was just I was raised with messages and in systems that were again perhaps some of them unintentional unintentional some right (laughs) they're both they're a little bit of both there yeah and so I feel like it's so important for me to say like, yeah, I'm a white woman and yeah, I'm racist, even though I have no desire to be. So then unless we're having these conversations and talking about diversity and talking about equity and inclusion and noticing those microaggressions and calling them out and helping people who inadvertently drop those little bombs without even realizing right. anything left behind them. Right then we're not going to make the change. This is the uncomfortable part. It's uncomfortable to say I'm racist and I don't want to be racist. So it's not enough for me to say that I'm racist when I don't want to be. I have to take the actions to be anti-racist. Anti-racist. I think that concept was completely missing 
from the vocabulary of yes. the white majority in this country until yes. 2020. And I'm right. not sure it's gotten to everybody yet. Right. <laughs> it's much more out there. Yeah. It's interesting because I, I had a post on my Instagram that kind of blew up and it was, it was a carousel, but it started with not racist versus anti-racist. Mm-hmm. And I went through, you know, saying that someone who is not racist is still someone who's benefiting from the system and not doing anything to dismantle, whereas an anti-racist is working to dismantle, understand. So I went through all these different things that are not racist. And, you know, people were, were a little upset. They were like, what do you mean not racist is, is and I said, it's part of the problem. You know, mm-hmm. saying that you're not racist is part of the problem because then you are just shutting everything off and not coming to terms with the fact that you are benefiting from this system. So therefore you are racist. And unless you're anti-racist, you are. And people were offended. And I thought, well, good. At least but they're that's reading it. Nice. <laughs> that's not nice. Did you just point out to them something that was true? That's not nice. nice. So what I thought, you know, I I don't think I'm here to be nice. I am I am a great person. I, you know, you meet me, it's great time, and I'm here to hear you, and I'm hoping you're hearing me. I'm you know, so that little thing, that thing that is very clear and very crystal, like there, if that bothers you, oh well. You know, I'm, 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 I said what I said, period. I'm done. (laughs) Good for you for owning it. And your mission in life is not to be nice. It's something much bigger. Yeah. I, you know, I, I've got, I've got kids. I've got children who have to grow up in this society. Therefore, if I can make a difference and change the way things are, that's what I'm going to do. So if your little feelings get hurt, well, too bad, because I said what I said. I, you know, I, I didn't stutter. I'm, I'm, I'm okay. <laughs> so. And you raise awareness in doing it. Even if people don't like being aware. Exactly. You still raise their consciousness. Exactly. They're going to think about it. Yeah. They're going to think about it and it's going to come up again for them. And they're going to, it's the seed that's been planted, whether you like it or not, the seed has been planted. If this is something that's new to you. And so now you can, you can go on and figure it out, <laughs> figure it out on your, <laughs> I'm going to your podcast will help. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll help I certainly hope so. I certainly hope so. So I'm going to bring it back a little bit to what it is that you do. Okay. A crisis navigation partner. As a crisis navigation partner, I feel that you are in a very good position to be an advocate for you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and reaching out to communities that are marginalized and helping those people to navigate the crises that they encounter, big or small, on a daily basis. Is there anything that I haven't asked you or that we haven't talked about that you would like to bring forth? Yeah, we've covered so much more than I even had kind of sketched out in my mind when I <laughs> having this conversation. I think that when I created this term, crisis navigation partner, and I listed out the crises that I imagined helping people navigate, mm-hmm. it was 2019. 
Mm-hmm. Nowhere on my list was pandemic. <laughs> and honestly, I didn't think of that. And honestly, when I thought about the work that I've done and the crises that I've helped people through before, mm-hmm. it didn't occur to me, even until I'm having this conversation with you right this minute, that one of those crises is being on the receiving end of racism, is being mm. on the receiving end of exclusion, of mm-hmm. being considered less than, of mm-hmm. being undervalued. Mm-hmm. That's crisis right there too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it didn't really occur to me. So right mm-hmm. this moment, that's how this part of me that really cares about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and this part of me that cares about no one navigating crises alone. Mm-hmm. That come together. Yeah. Thank you for helping me come to that. Aha. Oh my gosh. Ah, I'm excited. <laughs> yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, because, you know, it's honestly, after when I was reading through your bio and I was reading through what you do and I was like, oh my gosh, this is, she, she could actually help people that are on the receiving end. Like you just said, people who are experiencing marginalization, people who are experiencing those everyday aggressions, you know, on a regular basis and don't, really have anywhere to because the the aggressions and of course this is the 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 crux of this podcast is that there are aggressions that we endure Mm -hmm. we don't say anything about them because number one they're not really reportable because sometimes you speak them out loud and they don't make sense to anyone (laughs) but you so you don't say anything about them but they exist and they they're hurtful because you know that it was because of your skin color or because of your, your gender, because of your sexual orientation or because of this, that that conversation or that phrase or that thing was even dropped on you. And Mm -hmm. those are the things that people harbor. And that's the hard thing. Right. Um, And so those are the kind of things that I want to bring out here and say, hey, this happened. So what is your idea of, you know, how can we do better? And that's kind of the hard question, because, like I said, saying them out loud, they don't sound like something that would be an issue. Hmm. But it's always in the moment that you know that this was an issue. Right. Hmm. Um, the, The last podcast episode not the one that dropped yesterday but the last one um kevin was talking about how he was walking on its campus the campus that prided itself on being very friendly mm-hmm. and he was walking behind a white student and a, a student was coming towards them and then the student that was coming towards them said hi hello to the to the person that was in front of him and then got okay. to him and said oh what's up hmm. That's not something you can say to someone, well, this is what he said. And then someone's going to say, oh yeah, that was racist. But you know, it's like, why did you change the way that you relate simply because you saw that I was a black person. Now, all of a sudden you think this is how I want you to relate to me. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's things Mm -hmm. like that. They're so nuanced. Yeah. You know, people say all the time, well, how do you know that person is, is being racist? I'm like, can you need to take my word for it? Because when I say it, you're going to say, but that doesn't seem racist to me. That doesn't seem 
bad to me. That does. So that's where you have to give me the benefit of the doubt and say, okay, because it's not the intention, it's the impact. And I'm telling you how it impacted me. So you need to take that versus thinking, well, their intention, I don't care what their intention was. This is how it impacted, right? This is the impact it had. So you know what it's like to live in your body with your skin color all this time. (laughs) And you know what the impact is of this difference in treatment. Absolutely. I agree with you that you have to, people have to take your word for it. And when it's a couple of things, one, those experiences get stacked up. You know, that one time over here, I didn't feel it was included. The one time over here, yep. I didn't feel like I was treated the same. One time over yep. here, I didn't feel like I was I was treated fairly. And all of those things stacking up, that's mm-hmm. what takes the toll psychologically. That's mm-hmm. what eventually takes the toll physically because yes. you, your, your body and the, has the, gets stuck in the stress response cycle all the time and never completes it. And then yes. you end up with diabetes, hypertension, the things we were yes. talking about before. It's, it's just, it's so important to dialogue. Yeah. Dialoguing about it. And although it's uncomfortable and it's not nice to find yeah. out that there was a difference yeah. between hi, hello, and what's up. <laughs> yes. It needs to be discussed. It does. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, We've covered a lot. So let's just, let's wind it down. Let's bring it back down and let's say, so let's celebrate now. So we're going to celebrate. It's, it's two years from now. COVID is gone. We're celebrating something, something amazing has happened in, I don't know, the world in your, in your life, in, you know, industry. And so we're celebrating that. What has happened that would be worth celebrating? So many answers, but the first thing that came to mind was the number of Black people who are shot by police mm. dramatically declined on a year-over-year year average basis. Yes. That would give me peace of mind because my son is just coming up to the age where, you know, he's a threat. He's no longer that cute. He's just, you know, he's just a Black kid. So, yes. Awesome. So what is your favorite dish? That is my question for everybody because we are on diversity dish. What do you love to eat? <laughs> dish of ice cream. Except Yay! now I've been kind of going low dairy over the past year. So now my favorite thing is a dish of, although this may sound weird, oat milk ice cream. <laughs> it's really good. Okay. <laughs> you got to roll with treat. it. Yeah. Nice. Favorite treat. I love it. I love it. I love. And what do you have a favorite flavor? I like anything with peanut butter in it. Oh, so if it's like chocolate and peanut butter swirl. That's good. yeah. There's a company called Planet Oat that makes oat milk chocolate with peanut butter swirl ice yeah. cream, but not really not real cream. Sure, sure. Nice. I love it. Well, Deborah. I have had such a good time talking to you today. Thank you for making the time to come on Diversity Dish. Thank it has you so been such much a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me and thank you for having this conversation with me and helping me make connections between the disparate things in my brain that I never really realized how they went together until <laughs> just now. It's been a really enlightening conversation. I'm so grateful. Thank you. Hey, did you enjoy that episode? If so, 
please be sure to subscribe, download, rate, review, and share. It would also mean the world to me if you became a patron over at Patreon. The information is in the show notes. Thank you, and we'll see you next time.